what the listeners don't know is how close we were to me removing you from the list uh, because of the lunch debacle uh, pre-holidays in uh, Toronto. You came. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna elaborate. Okay. I'm just so you're gonna, not. That's cool. No. I understand that you don't want to mention that you stood me up the first time, and and therefore, okay, yeah. Okay, so I needed. I should have brought my lawyer to this uh, discussion. <laughs> Hey folks, Gavin Roth here with another episode of the Influencers of Sponsorship Marketing, sponsored by The Program, your guide to finding and watching women's sports online and on television. Subscribe to the weekly newsletter at theprogram.substack.com. If you want to get Brent Baruti's going, ask his opinion on Toronto being the quote-unquote center of the universe and ask him to talk sponsorship marketing. Brent is an author, a sought-after speaker, and one of the top sponsorship thought leaders in the country. We've been threatening to do an episode together for a while, and the stars finally aligned. We discuss his cross-country career journey, including stints in the hospitality sector, salmon farms, nightclubs, and radio stations. Pretty shady if you ask me. We focus on his time selling sponsorships on the Calgary Flames radio broadcasts, where he helped charities and other groups promote their brands. During that time, Brett noticed a gap in the market and started the partnership group. Brett mentions the people that inspired him along the way, including a cool story about one early adversary who became a mentor and a friend. Insights into some of the partnerships Brent has been involved with with a focus on municipality naming rights success stories in small towns like Summerside PEI and Morinville, Alberta. Brent shines a light on the new Jumpstart partnership with Clearview Rec Center in Edmonton. He then shares insights into sponsorship marketing trends, including the rise of purpose-driven partnerships, the way brands and properties band together in times of economic uncertainty, and the intersection between technology and data. And an example of how technology and data can be applied to help charities like Crohn's and Colitis and the MS Society fundraise and target partners. We wrap with awesome professional development advice and his answer started with a question, a deep philosophical question. You'll leave informed and inspired. I hope you enjoy. And for more episodes of the Influencers of Sponsorship Marketing, follow me on LinkedIn, visit Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or check out RothRevenue.com. Been looking forward to this chat. You've done so much in the space. You're, you're such a, uh, an influential figure that it's, it's been a natural to, uh, to target you for this. So, so yeah, listen, I'd love to just get you to start by talking about how do you got into sponsorship marketing how you got into doing what you do um tell tell us the journey so i was born at a very early age uh i was uh <laughs> i was born in a hospital because i want to be close to my mother at the time do you want me oh, to go that God. far back oh, or not God. not quite okay not so, quite 
Okay. So I came out of university and I chose that the last thing in the world I ever wanted to do was be a sales guy. Uh, I went to Western. um, Everybody interviewed with London Life in those days because it was based in London, Ontario. And you interviewed with General Mills and all the other companies. And I decided that wasn't for me. I didn't want to be a sales guy. And I ended up working for a chain of restaurants called Chi-Chi's Mexican Restaurants, uh, American company <clears throat> operating here in Canada. And I got a full-time management job. Uh, so all my peers were going into sales rep and account manager jobs. And I had a management job. So I was the assistant kitchen manager at uh, Chi-Chi's Mexican Restaurants. I am, I'm smiling right now because you are the only person I've talked to that also worked at Chi-Chi's. I was a waiter at Chi-Chi's in university. At Steels and Dufferin? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so what years were you there? Oh, my God. Uh, so uh, I would have been there uh, when I was like 1920, 18, 19. So like uh, 35 years ago. So, so are we talking like 83, 84? Uh, 84, so do the math, uh, maybe a little bit after that. Yeah, okay, I was long gone by then. I, I was at Steels and Dufferin uh, 83 and 84 and then opened up uh, uh, Scarborough, the second one uh, on Markham Road and then okay. opened up the downtown ones and uh, Queensway. All I remember is the training we had to go through to be a waiter was incredible because it's uh, the menu was so complex. Yeah, yeah, carry on. Yeah. So I, but it was a, it was a great experience. I got into the restaurant business. I was an assistant kitchen manager, and then I ended up uh, leaving Chi-Chi's to go work for this uh, new company that was coming into Canada called Red Lobster. So uh, I moved to the thriving metropolis of Windsor. Um, and uh, where we had one store in Canada at the time. And when I left Red Lobster three years later or so, or four years later, uh, we had 41 stores in Canada. We had opened, or no, sorry, 46. We had opened up 41 on in a period of eight months. And uh, it was a huge, we had bought up Ponderosa. So I had this hospitality industry background. I had worked, I was running kitchens, I was running bars, I was running, you know, within Chi-Chi's or uh, Red Lobster, opening opening these these uh, multi-million dollar properties um, and uh, having staffs of up to, like when you were at Chi-Chi's, you'd know there was like kitchen staff alone was a hundred and serving staff was, you know, on the on the roster was probably about 80. So uh, there was a there was a ton of staff. And so I then left uh, the GTA and I had opened up restaurants in for Red Lobster up in Ottawa as well. But I ended up going to uh, Atlantic Canada and I worked for a guy that owned nightclubs, radio stations, salmon farms and a whole bunch of uh, 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 real estate. And this was a nightclub in downtown Fredericton called the uh, Club Cosmopolitan. This would have been the late 80s. And I moved there. I ran the nightclub in ultimately in Fredericton and, and uh, Moncton for this guy. And they acquired the, the or they didn't, but the, the Montreal Canadians moved their farm team from Sherbrooke 
to Fredericton. So the Fredericton Canadians came into into Fredericton, and this guy Jim Ross, um, Jim Ross's radio station KHJ, the country station, became the broadcaster or the had the rights, the broadcast rights for the Fredericton Canadians. And uh, just prior to that, he had come to me and said, these kids aren't drinking like we used to drink when we were in university. They're coming into my nightclub and they're drinking water and dancing. We need to you know, make more revenue. So I looked at the building. What can we do to make revenue other than sell booze? And there were two things that we could do. And one was we took the dance club area and closed it down Monday to Wednesday or Sunday to Wednesday and made a trade show space. And then uh, because this building held this a uh, city of 45,000 people, this building held 1500 people. Uh, it was, you know, the largest experience in, in basically in Atlantic Canada. And so um, uh, we still had lots of space to serve people booze and, and play pool and all that type of stuff in the rest of the building. We just closed this one part of the building down and made a trade show space. The rest of the building, we started selling sponsorships. We started putting up naming hallways. We had uh, Trojan sampling condoms in line on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. The DJ was saying, hey, if you're going home tonight, make sure you call Joe's taxi service or whatever. So I was I built this revenue channel within the nightclub uh, around sponsorship and advertising. So when Jim's radio station acquired the rights, the broadcast rights, he came to me and said, we need you to build a bunch of packages for our sales guys at the radio station to sell in the broadcast. So I that was my first foray truly oh. into the sports marketing side. And from there, I got picked up by a company called Rolco Communications uh, based out of Calgary that owns stations in um uh, uh, Calgary and throughout Saskatchewan, Regina, Saskatoon, Prince Albert, and ultimately uh, those in your uh, uh, the center of the universe uh, in Toronto would know them for the launch of Kiss FM in um, the sure. uh, in the late nineties. I didn't know. Uh, actually, I didn't know they had radio stations in Western Canada. That's that's great insight. Well, we're I, I thought they were only in Toronto, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, they, they did get learning them. so much. I'm learning so much. <laughs> but you know what? In Western Canada, they're getting the first showings of Leave It to Beaver uh, right now. So uh, you know, I'm we're pretty lucky out here. So yeah. carry um, on, carry on. Okay, so don't go there. You're saying. <laughs> so the um, uh, Rocco Radio uh, ultimately they also own stations uh, for your you know your listeners in the Ottawa area. They owned uh, Magic and what's now um, uh, uh, Team 580 or whatever for the it was OSR uh, Ottawa Sports Radio Station at one point. Then it was called the Team, and uh, so the end result was that these guys hired me to come to Calgary. They had the broadcast rights. For the flames they had just acquired them and uh they offered me a job and i came out there and thought i've never been to calgary and this is kind of cool and uh so i moved from uh fredericton via kitchener to um i had taken a stint in uh, doing some teaching in in kitchener and then i i went out to calgary to to take this new role in the sports marketing 
opportunity and and uh it was selling sponsorships inside the broadcast for the calgary flames radio broadcasts we worked close in hand with the flames it was a true partnership type scenario we sold their rink boards they brought their clients to us to sell radio broadcasts to uh it was long before the days this was you know the this is the 90s it was long before the tsns and the sports nets uh you know the flames might have two nhl hockey games broadcast in hockey night in canada back in those days uh because everything was montreal and toronto and vancouver and uh you know regionally maybe three games so there would only be like five televised games back in those days so radio was pretty important so we um so that was my the start really on that side i did that for about a decade uh they shipped me to ottawa when rolko acquired the rights to the senators broadcast and uh uh and then those uh, then that got bought up by um what's now bell media and the stations in calgary were bought by rogers your former employer and i uh i was hired back to come all the way back a guy named uh that some of your listeners might remember at rogers a guy named gary miles um who was basically 2ic to to tony viner and, and ted rogers on the on the media side and gary hired me to come back to calgary to help them with the radio broadcast because uh, when rogers had bought it they weren't happy with the the people that were selling the flames broadcast and that sort of stuff so i was i was lucky enough to be offered a a, a good opportunity to come back to calgary and i did that for another couple of years and then in 2001 i found that there was a niche in the marketplace that there we were working <clears throat> selling pro sports programs but a lot of what we were selling um because we were in the oil and gas sector of Canada, those big oil and gas companies with big budgets, they weren't looking for retail messaging. They weren't saying, hey, come and come and buy an exploration package from us, right? Or a drilling package. They were looking for more community impact and sponsorship afforded. Yeah, you that. nailed it. Yeah. So probably you know the back in those days like the late 90s is selling maybe a million dollars a year it was um it was most uh, probably 50% of it was that type of uh community investment type uh, uh in uh, uh sponsorships and so i had a lot of experience at that time with the not for profits and the charities and marrying you know a gulf canada or a solid state geophysical or or uh in canna or you know these other companies to integrate them with charities not-for-profits tie it into the flames broadcast and such and you know and they were paying a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for these types of programs just in radio and then and then their flames component so i uh, i found that there was a niche in the marketplace that wasn't being served and that was really um helping those companies to understand how to get better roi when they were buying but also on the other side, truly the, the larger portion of our business uh, always has been and always will be those properties that are selling sponsorship. And in our case, it was amateur sport, uh, not-for-profits, charities, member associations, helping them to figure out what they had to sell because they had no idea. Hey, we're going to sell you a banner. It isn't going to do anybody any good. We'll put a logo on the website. Won't do anybody any good. 
but we so we went after that niche and to help those organizations that really had lots to sell but just didn't know what they had or what mm-hmm. it was worth and that was uh, so, so the start of the start of partnership group what was it yep. called when you started it when we launched it um it was just called the partnership group and there was a reason for that um we couldn't trademark um and we couldn't incorporate the name partnership group so the corporation that owns this is called the Baroudis Partnership Group Inc. But I didn't want Got my it. name right. in the in the company business. So our operating name was Partnership Group. And it's interesting you ask because when we launched as a company in September 2001, uh, we were a full service ad agency. We weren't just a sponsorship because I knew I couldn't make a living uh, doing the sponsorship gig because nobody really, the only other people in Canada, there wasn't anybody really in Canada doing it other than, you know, Momentum and and YNR had a sponsorship division, but they're the big agencies, right? Uh, they're really the only specialists in the country back in 2001 or in North America. The big guys were, were IEG out of Chicago. So we were like a mini IEG or that's where we wanted to get would to. Would you say, would you say IMG was... Uh... Was, no, because IMG back then was still really more of a um, uh, an athlete representation company yep. before they bought up inventory and took over all the Wimbledon inventory and yeah, the and yeah, and yeah. the uh, and that type of stuff. Yeah, they were ownership. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. were just getting to there. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think you were at IMG, weren't you? Or no, some of your no. some of your guests have been. Yeah, so correct. Um, so, so there were more so you, were the full, so you were a full service, full service agency. agency so we could make a living and yeah. a, a little bit of advice for anybody if you're going to start a company or a business make sure you have clients first we failed to do that so well, that's what i was going to ask next like who were your first <laughs> yeah yeah a good little detail there to 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 consider um yeah. who was who were your first kind of core clients so to start with when partnership group was created we um our clients were mostly full service ad agency type clients we were doing work for a furniture company called alberta furniture we were doing work for the the group of franchisees in calgary for the uh second cups uh we were doing work for lazy boy furniture galleries in alberta uh so that was media buying creative but also moving them into sponsorship we were also I uh, when I left Rogers to start the company, I also knew that a large portion of our business would be not for profits and charities, and I had never been in that business before. So I ran partnership group off the side of my desk, and I worked full time for the Canadian what was is now part of Canadian Cancer Society, but at the time was the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation. I went in as a development officer, and then within a few months moved up to director of development. And then we secured really partnership group secured our first real sponsorship client of substance uh, in 2003. So that was two years in. Uh, and that was the uh, host society for the 2005 Canada Games in Regina. And we were we were engaged uh, uh, to do a few things. Number one was 
to build out the sponsorship program, do all the inventory asset identification, all the valuations, do training, do uh, help them do the sales, all, all that type of stuff. It was in conjunction with the University of Regina and their capital campaign. So we had a good intermingling. Um, so at that point on taking on that contract, I left my full-time job at Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation. They then became a client and we serviced them from that side. Um, and that was really the, the stepping stone to, to, the, to the growth that we had after that. And by 2006 and 2007, we had, um, you know, well, probably about 2005 to 2007, we probably had four or five key clients and operating, and then it's, it's grown from there. By 2006, we started taking on additional staff. Mm-hmm. By 2008, we had a team of 10 or so uh, operating from there. Good stuff. And do you, speaking of that, like, uh, you know, you say core group of five or six, have you ever found there's a sweet spot of number of active clients? Uh, you know, I think about that a lot with my business, but I, I don't, you know, uh, I've purposely kept it, uh, you know, to no full-time staff just working with my network of associates to scale up. So for me, you know, six or seven at any given point is probably my sweet spot. Um, how do you look at that? So when it's interesting, I'm going to backtrack a little. Um, when I started the company, I mean, I had worked in radio. I had worked in the restaurant business, two industries that nobody's going to help you with a with a retirement plan. Um, and so my retirement plan was to start this company and ultimately to sell it off. And that was, and I, I designed the company into several components uh, so that I could sell off it as a whole or, you know, our, our conference sector, or I could sell off our, our <clears throat> training component or our sponsorship inventory and valuation component on the brand side or on the, uh, on the other side, on the property side. So it was segmented. It could be sold in whole or in parts, the, the whole concept, uh, lots of great thought and planning that went into that. Uh, to, to which uh, we we then grew, and when I grew, I mean, my objective was to make the company big enough to be able to make it somebody want to buy it. And we did the same as you up until about 2008, probably. Everybody was contractors. Uh, so we'd scale up, we'd scale down, um, those sorts of things. We had reached a threshold and had hired some financial consultants come in and look at the business and, and help us with understanding how to how to make margins better, that sort of stuff. And you know, we were paying some great consultants good dollars. And it actually turned out that for the, you know, eight consultants or six consultants that we had that were doing consulting work for us, um, uh, they accounted to basically 1.5 full-time employees. And those, the the payroll on that was about almost a half a million dollars. And so we're kind of going, we could hire two full-time employees for probably $175,000 that are really qualified and good. We're talking, you know, 2008, 2010 here, somewhere in there. And so, you know, you could pay one of them $100,000 and one of them $75,000 and you'd have more capacity than you need. And um, then you hit the 2008 recession and boom, we had just shifted into that. It, it was uh, so 
we we then downsized from there to go back to the system that we originally had, which you presently use, and we can still to, we do that to this day. Um, so we're able to scale up, but I can tell you that pre-COVID, there probably was a number, how many people and how many clients you want. Um, COVID threw a wrench in that, a good wrench for us. Um, the core of our business uh, has always been uh, doing inventories and valuations, and that's project work. You hire us, we come in, we identify all the assets tell you what they're worth, we build your strategy, we do some training, and we push you out and let you go do it on your own. The, the, the core of our business is that you hire us so you never have to hire consultants again, is, is our philosophy. Uh, people tell us that that's probably not a great, probably not a great business uh, plan, uh, but the fact that there's 85,000 not-for-profits and charities in Canada, Oh, yeah. um, I don't Lots think I'm going to run around. out. I'm not going to run out of business. So and you know what? And you do a great job and there's always something else that they'll turn to you yep. to do. Right? And we do. So, no, I think it's a good model. Yeah. So uh, that philosophy put them out the door, which means that, um, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be successful on their own. And we're constantly looking for new business. What happened with COVID, though, was that those inventory asset valuations came pretty much to a halt. I think in March 2020, we had six of them on slate to start between April and September. Uh, and, you know, they're all big contracts. They're all, you know, $100,000 or whatever. So you start to look at that stuff. All of a sudden, they were all gone. And our consulting business grew immensely. So where... All we were doing was providing advice and uh, and that business has been retained. And as COVID is is going away, our inventory asset valuation business has grown right back to where it was. It's exceeded the 2019 numbers this year will exceed the 2019 numbers. And then we put consulting on top of that. So uh -huh. we have a lot of active clients that we wouldn't have had before. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. You know, where somebody's paying us, you know, our hourly rate uh, or on a retainer for a couple thousand dollars a month or five thousand dollars a month. And we might have 10 or 12 of those plus our other work. Right. Yeah. Good. So that that world has changed dramatically. Our, our number of clients that mm. we're, we have that I would call active is probably triple what it would have been in 2019, even yeah. though that the, the revenues aren't necessarily triple. Yeah, I, I, I see that like uh, there's what what happened is properties, um, you know, unless they're the the, you know, the 15, 20 kind of top tier properties that have big yep. teams, everybody else, many of them lost staff, had to you know eliminate staff, staff went and said, I'm going to do something different with my life. And that's as they're coming out of it. They're turning to people like you, me, to uh, to help them figure out what to do, how to grow, how to get back to sustainable levels of revenue. So I, I think it is a, a, a good time to be doing what you're doing. And um, so, you know, talk about we'll we'll touch on some of the work you do uh, shortly. But but just along that journey, who who are some of the people that inspired or continue to inspire or just helped you kind of, you know, be, be, uh, get to the levels you are.
That's a that's a great question, and and I um I always like listening to to your podcasts and listening to your guests tell those mentors along the way, and and so many of them had official mentorships, but a lot of them didn't have official mentorships, and I fit in that category, um, and that's why. I try to put so much back into the mentoring, the official mentoring programs like the SMCC program, the Activate program, and others. But when I look back, um, we talked about Chi-Chi's. And this guy may have still been there when you were there. The general manager of Chi-Chi's that I worked for and hired me was a guy named Hans Bossman. And he was uh, he was a bit of a tyrant, but he was a... Uh, he he ran a tight ship, and I remember saying to him one day uh, that, hey, you know what? I talked to the other stores. I talked to the other, you know, assistant managers. They say that you're pretty lucky. You've got the best store. You never have any problems, uh, whereas the other stores are always, I always hear the chaos going on in, in the other stores. He just looked at me and said, you're an idiot. The reason this store does so well and looks that way is because I manage it. And I kind of looked at it and said, yeah, what does that mean? And he said, to, and this I've never forgotten this. Um, he said, the art of management is to figure out what could possibly go wrong and fix it before it happens. I don't wait until I have no staff to start hiring. I don't wait to place an order for more food when we run out. I anticipate those problems. I fix them before they happen. And every other general manager in the in the system says that I got the easiest store in the world to run. It's not that, it's just that they don't actually manage for the future, they manage panic manage and mm -hmm. try to put out fires. And I tried, yeah, so I've I've kept that philosophy that management is anticipating what can go wrong and fixing it before it happens so that nobody ever knows that there was a problem yeah. or could have been yeah. a problem right. and i've tried to integrate that obviously through my years in the hospitality industry but also in our industry in the sponsorship mm -hmm. industry as well so so probably he'd be one there'd be um when i worked for rolco of course the owner of rolco radio gord rawlinson would have been a mentor um just watching his success and he would always spend time with me and, and my direct bosses, uh, a guy named J uh, Don Armstrong and, and um, another guy named Mark Olson, who really at, at Calgary Flames Radio took me under the wing and, and especially another guy uh, took me under the wing, a guy named Steve Hines. And here's kind of an interesting story. He's retired now, but he had worked for Ralco. Then he worked for Rogers when they acquired it. Then he went over to Chorus, and then he came back to came back to Rogers, and then he went back to uh, Chorus, and he, he retired from Chorus about a year or so ago. But when I was hired, um, I was hired uh, by Don Armstrong and, and Mark Olson, and uh, but my dad did know Gord Rawlinson, and uh, my dad had known Gord's dad and and that type of stuff, so. I arrive May 20 or 1991 or 92, something like that. And this guy, Steve Hines, is the sales manager for the radio station, 66 CFR. And he's like, he doesn't, I can just tell, he doesn't like me from day one, right? And finally, it's a Friday afternoon. <laughs> I'm, see, I'm seeing a theme. 
Hans, you're an idiot. Yeah, exactly. Steve doesn't like you. This is uh, this is this is interesting. Yeah, welcome to my life. Totally surprising, but carry on. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, Steve pulls me into his office on um, on a Friday afternoon about four o'clock, and he says, "Listen, I've had just about enough. I need you to know, I don't like you. The only reason you have a damn job here is because your dad knows Gord Rawlinson." And you know nothing about goddamn radio. You've never been in the industry. You don't know what you're doing. Um, I'll give you all the support you need, but I I expect you to be gone within four my four to five months. You won't last. And I just sort of looked at it and said, "Thank you very much. Great, good to know." Challenge, challenge accepted. Yeah, thank you for the challenge. Yes. And um, and then I went out of the room, and I was there for a decade. Right. And he was there for much longer and he became a very close friend and a mentor for me. Um, and at one point uh, when he was with Chorus, not him, but one of his bosses hired us to come in and train the Chorus staff in Edmonton and Calgary because they had broadcast rights for pro sports teams, Stampeders and, and Oilers and and um, uh, what's now the Elks. And uh we did a training program on how to manage your time. What's the difference between selling radio versus selling radio uh, sports broadcasts, all that type of stuff. And of course, Steve's in that training, uh, but as a, as a as senior manager type thing. Yeah. And I start out with that story and you can just see his <laughs> face dropping. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he's going, not telling that effing story. And I said, oh, yeah, I am. And it was great, though. It was, but he, he would have been a great mentor to me and probably um, uh, two other people that I really think of uh, that were strong mentors, specifically in the activation side and the client side, are uh, a guy named Keith McIntyre. He ran Keith Mac. Uh, hey, you K probably Mac. know him. Yeah, yeah he ran K Mac. Um, I was working uh, for the Flames broadcast. We had brought Purolator in. Uh, a lady named Carol Solomon was running Purolator's marketing at the time, then went on over to AT&T Canada. But, you know, we this was the start of, this, you know, the, the Purolator's involvement in pro sports. And oh. this was myself and John Vedelin from the Flames, who's now, you know, the uh, – Chief um, Chief Revenue Officer for the Miami Heat. Uh, he had done the naming rights back uh, a few years ago for the 49ers uh, with the Levi Stadium. Oh. And so, so it was John Vedel and myself um, representing the Flames and the Flames broadcast. We did this deal with Purolator with Carol Solomon. She brought in Keith McIntyre because we, was, we were driving an event, a massive event that was going to be, it was all promoting Pure Later's retail locations because it was just the launch of these locations. And Keith was amazing to work with. And I learned so much from him in that in, on that account uh, to, to setting up these activations and everything else. And the other person who ultimately went on to, you know, uh, she she worked uh, she worked out of an office uh, uh, that that Mark Harrison was in, uh, the shared office space uh, at uh what would have been probably 28 Bluer, Bluer Street East, which is now a subway station. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, could right. picture, I could picture right. across, across, across. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so um, 
her name was Ingrid Rubin, an amazing, uh, an uh, amazing lady in our sector. And uh, God bless her soul. She's passed away. But she, you know, she worked closely with Carol and with Keith and, and then myself and we stayed in touch. So I would say Ingrid and, and Keith were two other people that um, and she ended up working for T1 uh, in her in her final years and was a great Ingrid was she was a great asset to this community. Um, but those would be the other two that really at that start were able to, to get me really understanding this this sector. And then later on, probably the biggest influence for me was a guy who was with Scotiabank. Um, and I first met him uh, sitting on the adjudicating committee for the uh, SMC uh, awards, so the SMAs. And uh, it was interesting. His name was Jim Tobin. So he was the architect, basically, in my mind, Scotiabank pro sports involvement. He did the deals with you know the naming rights in Calgary and stuff like that and set up the architecture for where they needed to go for others to come in and take it to that next level and the success it has become. And uh, But Jim, I'll never forget meeting him at those SMCC awards. Uh, uh, those days we would meet at the um, ACA's offices in the boardroom and uh, sit down around a table. We had all had the copies of the, the, the submissions and I arrived, my flight arrived a little late and I got in and I ended up sitting next to this guy. I didn't know who he was um, because I wasn't in the Toronto network. I was from out west, right? So I uh, sat next to this guy and we kept arguing over stuff like, I don't agree with you on that. And finally Jim, found out. Jim, Jim and an opinion? I don't know what yes, you're talking actually. about. <laughs> so and, and me having an opinion, right? And so, and we became great friends out of that and I, I learned so much from Jim over those last years that he was working uh, but I still continue to do I, I had lunch with him last night or breakfast with him uh, and Dana actually when I was last in uh, last in Toronto yeah, yeah, before before our ill-fated lunch yeah before our ill-fated I, yeah. I I think I did buy their <laughs> breakfast though don't worry <laughs> it's funny uh, you know with with that um, it would have been 2005 ish I was at the CFL heading up partnerships uh, sales and uh, and and developed that partnership with Scotiabank around the CFL. It yeah. was with Jim's boss at the time, Rick White. And yeah. uh, but then Jim took over and really helped grow that partnership. And and uh, and a big part of it was working with the regional VPs at Scotia in the West. They were influential in in pushing that deal across the line. So like George uh, and those guys, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd have to pull up some names, but George, there was a George, there was definitely a lady involved yeah. and the regional VPs just saw the value of the CFL in their communities. And Jim, Jim and I had many trips out to uh, West finals and great cups and, and uh, became such a driving force of that partnership. So good to hear his name come up. So, so that would probably be when I look back, and I know that's a long list, but I'm thinking about it. I've been in this friggin' industry for almost 35 years, uh, uh, probably longer than some of the listeners that, uh, of your podcast that have even been alive. But uh, <laughs> no, no, that's great, and I love shining a light on, as you say, just just pa paying it back, right? And and talking about we we don't, 
it takes a village, right? We don't all yep. get to where we are without inspiration and support. So great, great stories. Um, talk about, let's shift to partnerships uh, that you're particular, you've been involved in that, that uh, stand out, you know, uh, that you're proud of. Well, I go back to that one with um, uh, Purolator, and I think about that. That was really, you know, um, probably my first real true sponsorship from that perspective. I mean, you know, we had sold other stuff, but this was this is where, you know, this was the big leagues. Uh, this was pure later investing a lot of money um, and activations. We we brought them um, we brought them in. Uh, we had a morning skate whereby that you know they could bring in key clients. Uh, then from there we you know we had a, a game night. We created something called the pure later power play and penalty killer. Uh, we had Al McKinnis and Gary Roberts who are on the power play to be their spokespeople. Ultimately, we got Don, I know this probably isn't the right person to mention anymore, but we brought Don Cherry in and he became Purolator's spokesperson for several years. And then they took that program that we, that, you know, between Keith and Ingrid and Carol and myself and John Vedelin, they took that and they, they duplicated it in Toronto and Ottawa and took it to market and then, they, you know, they left the NHL for the most part, other than than uh, than board space, and came over to be with you. So, I mean, that was, you know, I mean, we're talking on 93, 94, almost a decade before, or over a decade before, um, you know, they, they came into the CFL, or pretty close to it. And that was um, uh, probably really important in my mind for, you know, my start. Um, some of the other ones that I, I kind of think about, um, uh, we had a great opportunity. Uh, it was a learning experience, two learning experiences. Uh, one was we also did a big program with Harvey's Restaurants uh, for Calgary uh, with the Flames broadcast. And it was interesting because it was, uh, uh, you know, the Grizzlies were in Vancouver. The Raptors were in um, were in uh, uh, Toronto. Harvey's had sort of started down this channel of we'll get into basketball, but the franchisees in Calgary said we need to do something different. So we did this massive uh, program uh, for Harvey's uh, on a one-year trial. Um, and it was highly successful, it tied in, it was, it, it was a good tie because the mascot for the Flames is a guy named Harvey the Hound. And in those days, we're talking the 90s, you know, I mean, you couldn't give away Flames tickets with $5 bills attached to them. I mean, they, they weren't a team that anybody really wanted to go see, but Harvey the Hound actually I'm thinking, commenced. I'm thinking Craig McTavish right now, but. Yeah, on. you are. That, that'd yeah, be yeah. The, tongue, <laughs> the tongue incident, right? So Harvey was extremely prominent. And in fact, for a period of about four years, Harvey did more public appearances than all the Flames players combined in any given year. So Harvey, and you had to pay to have Harvey. And so we tied, Har it was Harvey the Hound was the spokesperson or spokes dog for Harvey's restaurants. Uh, don't go to the meat and the dog and all that type of stuff. But 
uh, it worked great. Well, the rest of the country in that year for Harvey's had a growth of uh, same time, same same time previous year of about one and a half to two percent. All the Calgary stores had double digits, some wow. of them as high as 18 to 20 percent. So huge growth. Uh, new VP comes in and says, hockey doesn't make sense to our plan. Doesn't like We're going to tie. He doesn't like talks. And the end result was uh, they canned the program. Uh, So it was uh, try filling that gaping hole for, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, as you try to make budget the next year. Right. That's interesting. You say that like that's such a common issue for properties is is complacency almost. Right. Like your program's going well, uh, but it's a big piece of your budget. It's one of those, you know, lessons right about we better keep an eye on who else in case something, one of these partners leaves, right? And we're not left scrambling, but yeah, yeah, but carry on. When I think about um, that, that being cautious side, it was interesting when I was with Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation, um, they uh, shoppers drug mart, this was long before the Weston family and, and um, uh, Loblaws owned them. they were looking at doing a um it was back in the days when they used to have i think originally they had a tree and you could buy leaves and you put the leaves on the tree for a dollar or whatever and that money went to organizations and then i think they did it with uh, i think it ended up being with juvenile diabetes but they came to us they came to us at canadian breast cancer foundation and shoppers was operating basically out of calgary at that time and so uh I was working with the shoppers people and uh, on this national program. And as I did before it went national, it was just going to be Alberta. And uh, so I was working on the Alberta program and this would have been like six figures. Um, And I did all the due diligence and I came back to our board of directors and said, we're going to have to turn down this opportunity with shoppers. And they said, what do you mean? This is, you know, this is the perfect one. It's, it's, you know, they're a good community company and everything else. And I said, well, it has to do with cigarettes. And they said, well, they're getting out of the cigarette business. They're not even selling cigarettes within the next year. And, and I'm going, yeah, but it, it's bigger than that. Um, if you do the due diligence, you'll see that the, the majority shareholder or the controlling shareholder is a company called Amasco. And that is the parent company of players filter cigarettes and i said if i can dig that up i can pretty sure that some journalist investigative journalist is going to dig that up as well and you're going to take six figures from shoppers and then somebody's going to say but they're owned by a by a cigarette company and you have a policy you don't take money from cigarette companies right So we had to walk on that deal, and it was um, it was it was pretty interesting because I almost got fired for it uh, because <laughs> I wouldn't take the deal, right? Yeah. But when I look at the other side, I mean, those are years ago. A couple of the more recent ones that I'm really proud of, and it's not the work that we as a company did, but the clients did, and we just we were along for the ride, providing advice or building the inventory or whatever, but one of them probably is is uh, the city of Summerside and PEI. Uh, we came in, we built out their inventory, we did their valuation, we did some training and everything else, which helped them 
to renew their um, naming rights on the credit union center in in uh, in Summerside, uh, and then they've been able to increase their their sponsorship revenues almost tenfold over the last three or four years uh, between naming rights and other. Um, so important and, for those smaller communities, right? Yeah, yeah good. And this, you know, and and there's a town of Morinville up in in uh, just north of uh, of uh, Edmonton that we did work for the town of Morinville and help them to go out and sell some sponsorships around their new recreation center. This is, you know, a town of 16,000 people. We're not talking, you know, Orangeville. We're not talking Richmond Hill. We're not talking city of Toronto. We're, we're talking 16,000 people in, in rural Alberta, north of Edmonton. And, you know, they were able to, they're, they're generating a quarter of a million dollars a year in 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 sponsorship dollars and naming rights dollars inside that building and they haven't even they've yet to sell the outside of the building you know so wow. it's, it's those little ones that make a big difference and, and i'm really proud of uh those and the other one more recently in a larger marketplace and we had nothing to do with the negotiations we were truly just consultants to the city of edmonton through it but an iconic, iconic uh, naming rights opportunity that's uh, come into place between Jumpstart and City of Edmonton, uh, and the renaming of Clairview uh, Recreation Center into uh, Jumpstart Recreation and Community oh. Center. Um, I haven't seen many where it's not Canadian Tire Center. It's no, Jumpstart Center. It is Jumpstart. It was Marco that was the initiator of it. Uh, reached out. Um, and uh expressed interest and uh they went from there it was you know two years in the making um uh and it's been fantastic they they went through a lot of stumbling blocks uh like you know uh, uh elected officials that you know were looking to grandstand rather than do what's in the best interest of the people uh so there, there were some hurdles from that perspective but it it came through and and uh, we'll watch next uh, the city of Edmonton uh, uh, you know announce probably in the next few months a couple more naming rights uh, not not with a charity like Jumpstart they're actually businesses yeah. but uh, yeah. and just watching those types of things uh, and happen you know that um, uh, uh, that make a difference and so yeah, I, I think those purpose are driven some... partnerships right yeah. that that's that's been the the trend and and. Uh, and we'll talk about trends next, but uh, pausing on this topic, um, it makes me think of, of Climate Pledge Arena. Mm -hmm. And you watch the Seattle Kraken where they play in Seattle. Amazon is footing the bill, but the name of the arena is, is Climate Pledge. And if you look at the Kraken's helmets, it says Climate Pledge. It doesn't say AWS, it doesn't say Amazon. And just brands using these massive platforms for to shine a light on important uh, social responsibility um, uh, initiatives. Um, I think that's only going to continue. Uh, I, I'm failing to remember, but there's some examples if if listeners go and Google where um, a European soccer team will be sponsored by a brand, but they'll instead of putting their brand, they'll put the charity they're supporting on the signage, right? And and it's just brands with the the monetary the resources using that for for really good reasons. The uniqueness of the Climate Pledge Arena is that when they built the arena and they bringing the crack into the city, 
they made the commitment that they would not, and this was in in conjunction with the city of uh, uh, Seattle, was that uh, they would not have corporate name signage or anything front facing out of the arena. So even Amazon, if they had wanted to put their name on the building, they couldn't. There was no way they could have their name on the exterior of the building. Uh, so Climate Pledge Arena worked way better. But also, if you look, and that, that that building has a lot of glass in it, a lot of windows, you won't see any corporate signage. There is no visibility line. There is no sight line that you would see an Amazon logo or a uh, Alaskan Airlines logo by looking into the building. Inside the building, you may see it, but there's no line of sight to be able to see it from the outside. And that's we're seeing some of that trend, especially with large properties that, you know, they they want to make the feel that it's not as corporate as, as it is, that they, uh, they care. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's interesting because for the amount of money they're ponying up, right, you would think that outward facing brand visibility component is really critical. But I think it's about to me what that makes me feel is if you find the right brands, right, that buy into that that philosophy that hitting people over the head is not necessarily the way to win their hearts and minds. It's uh, we can do it in other uh, strategic ways through this partnership with with venue X or whatever the case may be. So so speaking of that's a good pivot. Um, what else are you seeing? You know, you're you're a guy who works with so many different properties and by by extension brands and um, you you study a lot of stuff. You're talking. What other trends in sponsorship marketing are you paying attention to? I think post COVID. People have got to know their, their their partners better, and they've had to, and they've had to understand that. And I watched the, the trend that's within this is that every time there's a reset in the economy, so 2008, 2014, 15, again in 2021, 2022, post-COVID, each of those resets has caused us to go deeper into our partners and understand their their business, their goals, their objectives, and how can we help? So I, I think that trend is coming back and I'm seeing more and more organizations, both on the property and the brand side, having those meaningful discussions before a proposal's even looked at or even mm-hmm. ideation is done. Because you can't ideate concepts and, and, and activations and so forth and so on until you've reached that point of understanding what the goals and objectives are. So I think that that's one of the trends I'm seeing, and I'm not sure if you're recognizing it or seeing it as well. No, I, I, it's a great uh, riff off that for a sec is, um, you know, you're right. You would Your instinct is to hear that and say, well, of course, uh, that's how things should get done. But I love the way you linked it to these kind of seminal moments and these these um, you know moments of economic uncertainty, uh, which make both sides almost um, reflect and dig deeper and really care more about helping each other and and properties. I think realizing, wait a second, if I'm going to get money from Partner X in this climate, I better be 
really smart and strategic in how I go about doing it. And then in other times, maybe they get they take their foot off the gas and get a bit complacent. So it is, as you say, it's a moment to reset and rethink how you go about crafting a partnership. So, no, I love the point. And you said it in way less words and time than I did. Perfect. Uh, well, it's so. easy when you go number two, isn't it? It's like it's like <laughs> how many second pots have you missed in your life? You know, when 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 you blow the first one past the hole and then you angrily put the ball down and and you hit it in the second time, it it always works. So that's 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 what just happened there. But carry on, please. So the second <laughs> half of all those trends, I would see people are gonna go, what? What's he <laughs> talking about? So I've I've been doing that for years with you, Gavin. But um, so the second group, I think the trends, and it, it, nobody can can um, uh, say anything against this. I mean, I mean, it's technology. Um, yeah. And part in that technology is what you just described, and you nailed it. Is is the uh, and we talked about earlier is the is the social investment. Um, so as a, as an organization, what are, what am I and my partner doing, whether I'm the brand or the property, to make a difference in the lives of others? And those have become extremely impactful. But the step that's gone beyond is the technology side. And how can we do that? How can we raise more money? And if you take a look, I mean, uh, today we're 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 talking today, and it's uh, you know Bell Let's Talk Day, and the uh, and the um, the technology that goes by behind that to be able to raise fifteen million dollars to give away, right? So those types of things. But when I look at technology, I'm seeing that trend go with things like augmented reality and and the AI side. But probably the biggest comeback that I have seen, and I think we'll all agree, is the QR code. You know, like, I mean, the QR code in 2000 and... Oh, no. it was dead. It was, yeah. it died. Yeah, what happened? It, it is not dead. It turns yeah. out it is back. It's back and it's... With a vengeance. It, with a huge vengeance and and a purpose and i mean i go back to think i think it was 2007 or 2008 we had we, we promoted the qr code at the western sponsorship congress um it was a feature it was something that um i spoke about and how you can use it and the inexpensiveness of it and blah 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 and then it you're right it died it fell off the face of the earth but come covid and look at post-COVID, there isn't a restaurant in the country that's really printing friggin' menus anymore. They're forcing you to go, you know, to go to their QR codes on their tables. And but more importantly, it's how can that sponsor generate data firsthand? How can they control the data instead of going through you, the property? And they can do that through QR codes, through AR, through AI, and, and those methods. And the amount of data and information that's available is absolutely incredible. And when we look at what some of the work that we're doing, if you would ask me this five, uh, no, not five years ago, because we were doing it five years ago, but 10 years ago, ask me about big data and how I can use that to help you determine who you should be calling on as a property. I mean, We've done some incredible work over the last few years with uh, the MS Society to help them to target groups they never would have thought of targeting. And even as brilliant consultants, we could never have identified those groups. 
But yeah. when we start digging into the big data, like we're doing right now with Crohn's and Colitis Canada, it's it's incredible that the information that we can come up with and say, here's why you should be talking to casinos, or here's why you should be talking to Maple Leaf Foods, or here's why you should be, because every single postal code has 22,000 pieces of information attached to it. Yeah. I I know where you're having most, you know, most of your fast food uh, enchantments. Is it Harvey's? Is it is it A&W? Is it MS? That's so quite shady. a way to put it. Fast food enchantments. That uh, yeah. makes it seem very romantic and, 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 and fantasy-like. Uh, it, it, no, it's an interesting point. Uh, and, and so when you, it's why I just read an article today um, uh, about you know, when we give our email to register and what what really that's allowing uh, the holder of that email to track, it gives them access to way more data and, and information on your habits than you think because you use that email as a um, uh, piece of ID in so many other places in your digital experience, right? Yeah. So just about, are you aware of that and are you okay with that? And uh, But it does allow marketers to get way more targeted in, in if it's put in the right hands. And frankly, I don't know if you're this way, I'm, I'm you know, I'm fine with people serving me relevant content based yeah. on the information I give. It's just you hope that's as far as it goes. And these days there's concerns that privacy, data privacy, you know, is at risk, right? All so, I can say, Kevin, is yeah. you'd better move beyond hope because you know very well yes. that they're taking way yes. more than just yes. that, that of course. applicable data to help you make purchasing decisions um yeah. but the, the postal code like literally the postal code is the thing yeah. that has all that data and we use Enveronics um to be able to take that data and then we have our own logarithms and our own systems to be able to then take that next data and be able to show somebody why they should be calling on somebody and when they get there they're the the brand is going why are you talking to us well these this is our audience and and this is your audience we think mm -hmm. and they're kind of going holy crap never would have put those two and two together right see i would have thought i would have thought for uh, crohn's and colitis as an example and yeah. i know uh uh lori uh from a former life um the the i would have thought that data would have informed their donor individual donor outreach strategy, but you're saying you can use it to, uh, what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, gather information on their donors to be able to go to corporate brands and say, we've got a lot more knowledge on the on the, the, the supporters of Crohn's and colitis, and that would allow Partner X, Brand X, Prospect X to make a decision on, yeah, this is the audience I want to connect with yeah and you're right they they can use that same data for their donor donor side and their direct mail and their and targeting and all that sort of stuff but it works the other way too so for example um this is with ms we took all the data we broke it down and we created out of their hundred thousand person database that they gave us uh we were able to to identify that we could reach between two target groups that we build using profiles, two to three profiles each of the Enveronics profiles and, and personas. Out of that, we were able to 
access 80% or 80,000 of that 100,000 database. And in that, one was called, and, and I'm sharing this because MS has shared it uh, at a mm -hmm. conference, so I'm not, I'm not giving mm -hmm. away information. But um, one of those groups we called the coveted group, and they were very much a coveted group. They had disposable income coming out the yin-yang, uh, that type of stuff. But what was interesting is when you took that audience, that 20,000 people, and you measured it, and I'll give you an example specifically, this group against that same demographic across all of Ontario, this group was almost eight times more likely to spend in excess of $15,000 a year mm. in casinos. So I can tell you as a consultant, I never would have said to MS, have you, are you talking to casinos? You should be talking to casinos, right? There, this is eight plus times greater than that same person not associated to MS spending 15 grand a year or more in casinos. Hmm. That, that's how pinpointed it can get. We could look at the fact that, you know, A&W spiked for MS, this, this database in both, both of the two cohort groups in 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 august every year why because they run an msa w program right the team burger program sure so all that data shows and that's that's that technology and that insights mm. that you have to take and i think that that's where we're trending now is that there's so much data and so much technology and the brands want more and more of that through their partners so well, can that, they do that, that can they do it through a QR code? Can they do it through gamification? Can they do it through what, right? Yeah, and that, what it makes me think is I, I believe sophisticated brands uh, have been all over data for well over 10 years, right? Agreed. Uh, you know, uh, probably a little bit longer, well over 10 years. Um, the It's the properties that I'm noticing are catching up finally and it's something certainly i've been advocating for with any property i work with and you do a lot of the same work and they're doing the same is is you know you have to just be smarter and provide richer data if you want to unlock maximum investment in your property and and there's a saying that that brands will uh buy emotionally but they will need to rationalize intellectually. So you need to give them that, that data, arm them with that data to help them rationalize it. And in this climate, and back to your earlier trend about you know, these, these moments where the, there's uncertainty in the market, brands have a greater need to rationalize intellectually those, those finite dollars, right? So I think marrying the, the, the need for data and that uncertainty or two groups of trends, uh, I could see them really neatly coming together. Yeah, I think that those, for me, Gavin, uh, those are really the two, those are the two trends that I've seen across the board. And it, as you've just described, it, it, it has tentacles that go out oh, yeah. to touch different areas. So. Yeah, it makes me think of my latest binge, uh, The Last of Us. Have you, have you started on that yet on no, HBO? No, yeah. Yeah, it's got very much a virus that has tentacles and spreads out. But that's another another. I live in day. Western Canada. We're just getting oh, the you first don't showings get, to Leave It to Beaver. Remember? You don't get TV out there, right? Got it. Yeah. Got it. 
Okay. Well, I did uh, see Happy Days the other day. It's a great <laughs> series. I'm I'm looking forward to the next week's episode. <laughs> yeah, must see TV. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. We've got these things called uh, uh, PVRs here. Uh, one, uh, you know, I'll send you a, I'll send you a, a pigeon with uh, with a, with a with a scroll and I'll cool. tell you all about it. <laughs> I'll look for it. I've got a landing dock for them. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so listen, great great chat. Let's let's wrap up on um, one of my favorite topics, uh, whether it's on this podcast or just talking to people in general but anybody who's had uh success in what they've done and their their chosen field and craft and you know had a great sustained run they're doing something right and i'd love to just get your take on you know what what are those keys to building a successful and sustained career in something that you're really passionate about i um I thought about this, Gavin, and, and I think the biggest thing I just um, I, my Tuesday morning commentary last week uh, was based on a a question that somebody asked me on LinkedIn before Christmas, and that question was if you could ask any question of somebody to find out an insight within them, what oh. would that question be? And I um, I responded and I said I think that question would be Tell me what your purpose is here on earth. Why were you put here? Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it clearly opens the door. And so, of, of course, he he responded quite quickly to say, so how would you answer that? And <laughs> opened up that that mess, right? Yes. Um, so I responded in my Tuesday morning commentary with it. And, it, you know, I believe I was put here to help others, whether that is to you know, provide value and service to my family, my clients, my community, uh, everything I do, I'm trying to do to make it a better place, whether that was when I was in the restaurant business and, you know, making people happy at the table or giving that server the weekend off that they needed or whatever it was. And when I look at the sponsorship industry, and that's any industry at all, really, you have to have, as you described, that passion. What, what's the reason behind it? And so once you get that passion, I think the best thing, that, the best advice I can offer is, and a lot of your guests have already said most of this, but, you know, uh, be there 100% all the time. Um, I was just listening to an interview uh, the other day, and it was really interesting because she said that, uh, this lady said that, I went down and it just say, for example, you want to be in the arts and you want to be in sponsorship in the arts, you want to be in sports, find a way to get into an arts organization, not to just be there and volunteer or intern or anything like that. But when you have spare time, go and sit in the in the uh, backstage and watch the production if they'll let you or to go and sit in the uh, outside the the. Um, uh, the broadcast studio uh, for Sportsnet or whatever it is. Because if you're recognized and you're there all the time, when you apply, people say, I know that person. Mm. I know that person is. Showing up, right? Showing yep. up, being present. But even even when you're not working there. Yes. Like you're just, and bring your homework and do your homework there or whatever. Um so I think that that's what, that was a great piece of advice that I took away, and, and I wished I had done that. 
but I, I think the the real the real elements are whether you get a mentor by a formal process uh, uh, or whether it's just somebody you know and and it's not a formal process and I can tell you that you know right now between AFP SMCC and I think we talked about this earlier that you know I have six or seven mentees on the go and I gain a lot from them but also they gain a lot from me whether it's an introduction to somebody or whether it's uh, uh, helping them through a process um those are the types of things that I think are, are really important in professional development. We need to provide a better program of training and professional development for our industry. If we look at the Association of Fundraising Professionals, the marketing industry, the lawyers industry, the uh, chartered accountants industry, they all have professional development. We really don't um, across the, the sponsorship industry. We have bits and pieces through colleges, universities, Laurentian, George Brown, but nothing holistic for the industry and no industry standards. And I think that those are two of the things and possible certification are what's needed in this industry. I think those are the next steps is certification and industry-wide standards and acceptances. Well, I think uh, that's a great cry for uh, and call out for um, a very important, you know, kind of um, elevation of, of, the work that started and I think you're the type of guy who a lot of people would listen to such great insight from you um, throughout this chat and I really appreciate you taking the time thanks very much congratulations on the success of the show it's fantastic I've listened yeah. to every episode and uh, it's it's a it's a great addition to our to our sector thanks a lot Gavin